Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. And welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and as always, I am joined with my beautiful pod half, Jessica. Aw, thanks, friend. And hello, Spooksters. And today we are doing another patron select episode or Spookster Club select. I don't know why I can't talk, but here we are. This is going well already. <laughs> it's my episode. Shit. But today's episode is dedicated to our patron, Melissa. She has chosen Derek Todd Lee or the Baton Rouge serial killer. So buckle the fuck up, guys. This is probably going to be a little bit of a lengthy one. But before we get started, if you are new here, hello and welcome. And returning spooksters, thank you for listening to us each week. Welcome back. We love you very much. If you guys are newer or would like to connect with us via social media, you can head to the show notes to our link tree that has literally everything Three Spooked Girls related for you there. Or we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is at Three Spooked Girls. And we also have our Facebook group, which is our favorite little corner of the internet, and that is Three Spooked Girls Official. And if you'd like to support the show and possibly have an episode just like this all for you, you can head to patreon.com slash three spooked girls or again, that link tree. As little as a dollar starts bonus content for you. Uh, all tiers get one episode a month, two gets three episodes a month, and five and up get the three episodes plus a video episode every month, plus live streams and all kinds of other cool stuff. And our 10 and up patrons, they get to select an episode. A good number of you that are at those tiers have sent in your topic. So thank you for that. We have some really interesting stuff coming up for you guys. So we do. Cannot wait. Yes. And we're kind of flip-flopping these with stabbies, so be a little patient with us. If you are waiting on your episode to come out, it will come out, we promise. We've got a whole skidge separately for those guys. But yeah, you can head there to support the show, and we always appreciate each and every single one of you. But I think I'm just going to go ahead and dive on in, because like I said, I have a lot to cover today. So... Derek Todd Lee was born on November 5th, 1968 in St. Francisville, Louisiana. Also, asterisk, I will probably say some of this stuff wrong. Please forgive my California ass. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) He was born to Samuel, Ruth, and Florence Lee. He was one of 13 siblings. A lot. That is a lot. Right. Shortly after Derek was born, his father left. And most of the time, while this would be a negative thing, in reality, it was for the best because he actually would end up in a mental institution after being charged with attempted murder of his ex-wife. Oh, shit. Yes. And the reason he was in a mental institution versus prison was because he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and psychosis. And there wasn't really much information if he was like 
in treatment for that or if this was found once he was, you know, going through all of this stuff, that's when he was diagnosed. So I'm not too sure. I will also say thank you to Melissa for selecting this because she said it to us, too. There's not a lot of stuff out about this serial killer. And I found that out in my research, but it's OK. I went around and, you know, picked what I needed. So it worked out. Fun fact, there's a Forensic Files episode, Jessica. I love Forensic Files. I've probably seen it. I think you have because when I watched it, it had a lot of like familiar stuff to me. So I think you've definitely watched it. But anyways, just a few years later, after their divorce and everything, Florence would actually get remarried. She would marry a man named Coleman Barrow. And it was said that Florence's luck with men completely changed when she met him, that Coleman raised the kids as his own and they lived in a household that valued education and the Bible. So a much more traditional household from my understanding. Growing up, Derek did struggle academically and was bullied because he was in some special education classes and, you know, kids are asked. So stuff like that. His history of red flag activity began at the age of 11. So during this time, he began and was caught peeping into girls' windows. And he also liked to torture cats and dogs. Big red flags. At 13, he would be arrested for a simple burglary and voyeurism. Moving into his later teen years, he did participate in the school band for a time before he dropped out in the 11th grade. From my understanding, he struggled with education pretty much the whole time he was in school. It is noted that he was tested for his IQ, and those results ranged from 65 to 75. Then at 16, he was charged with attempted second-degree murder after pulling out a knife on another boy during a fight. And then a year later, at 17, he would be arrested again for peeping, but somehow he kept avoiding time in a juvenile detention center. And that's also a theme that'll come out through this, and it's really frustrating. So now we're going to jump ahead a couple years to 1988, so when Derek is about 20. And he, at this time, married Jacqueline Sims, and they would have two children together. He had a daughter and a son. I'm not going to go super into detail about them because, you know, being children of serial killers and other really bad people is always tough enough. So I will leave that at that. He also ended up pleading guilty for unauthorized entry to an inhabited dwelling shortly after getting together with Jacqueline. And a common theme that we see with a lot of serial killers, like ones we cover and ones we know about, they have double lives. So he was similar in that aspect. At home, he'd be considered like a family man, and he was described as a really hard worker. He worked in construction. But then on the flip side, he'd go out and basically just act like a bachelor, and he would have multiple affairs and do whatever the fuck he wanted, pretty much, along with his criminal activity. Oh, super stand-up dude. Unlike most serial killers, though, his wife knew about all of that. She ended up just kind of accepting it and saw his jail time as a breakaway from him. And, you know, you might be thinking maybe she'd want to dump his ass, but it just said that she was very devoted to him. So she stayed, which is always just kind of heartbreaking in those situations. Also, to keep on theme with the double life, uh, I mentioned he had affairs, but one of the noteworthy girls that he had a thing with actually ended up being a longtime girlfriend. Oh. Yeah. And her name was Cassandra Green, and she'll come up here in a minute. So in 96, Jacqueline's father would die at work due to a plant explosion, and she would be awarded $250,000. And it really wasn't surprising for me to read that Derek pretty much blew through all of that. It was said he mainly spent it on himself and also Cassandra and not really like Jacqueline or the kids or anything like that. And he'd go through that in three years. So it was gone by 99. 
Oh, shit. Yeah. And the following year, so now going into 2000, shit would start to stir up again. Derek was convicted of fleeing from an officer after he attacked Cassandra in a bar parking lot. Something to note with this is that at this point, I'm not sure exactly what happened, but basically she had a protection order on him and he ran into her in the parking lot and then assaulted her. He was sentenced to two years of in prison for this, but he would end up being released in February 2001 to be put on house arrest and was ordered to also wear an ankle monitor. And just three months later, so May, he would be caught trying to remove and destroy the ankle bracelet. And that absolutely should have sent him back to prison. But again, he somehow got out of that and he basically just got a slap on the wrist. He gets away with a lot of shit. There's a lot of opportunities where he could have just been put in jail and avoided all this fucking death. But we find that a lot with these type of people because of their personalities. Oh, yeah. He's described as like a smooth talker. So I'm not surprised. And one more little tidbit before I get into the victims here. It overlaps a little on the timeline, but it's okay. So in 2001, he was arrested for battery against Jacqueline. Charges were dropped, so nothing ended up happening. Again, my heart just kind of hurts for her. It really does. So the victims. In total, Derek would confess to having 17 victims. They think there sadly could have been more, but we just don't know. You know, especially because it's like we've seen this with other people. They'll confess to like extra stuff or make up stuff. Just I don't know, because I think talking and providing information is going to bite them time. True. In a way, it does, because if they like confess after the math and they like go and find a body, then they have to charge that person with that crime. Right. Either way, it just kind of makes your heart hurt for those families of those other victims, whether that happened because of Derek or it happened because of, you know, somebody else. Mm hmm. So like I already said, what's kind of frustrating with this is like there's not a ton of media on it, which I was kind of surprised because it wasn't like it was it's a super, super old case like this was in the 90s and 2000s. So not that long ago. I know technology was different, but still. So I'm going to walk us through roughly about I believe it's 10 total is what I have that we're going to go ahead and go through. Like I said, he did confess to others, but essentially those cases lacked DNA evidence. So they had a really hard time linking some of those to him because like as you'll learn, DNA is like a big thing in spoilers how he gets caught. So the first one I'm going to talk about is Connie Warner. Her murder occurred on August 23rd, 1992 in Zachary, Louisiana. She was bludgeoned to death with a hammer. Now, this actually would be unsolved for a long time. It wouldn't be updated to be linked to Derek until 2004. So what happened with that was a man named Andre. He was Connie's daughter's boyfriend. And he said he was trying to tell police like shortly after it happened that someone suspicious had been around a couple days before, but he wasn't taken seriously at the time because he was essentially like the prime suspect type of thing. So they were just like, whatever. So Andre had said he was, quote, suspicious of a black stranger he kept seeing outside of the Warner home, end quote. On Friday, August 21st, Andre had came to pick up Tracy, which was the daughter, for LSU's orientation weekend and decided to confront him. In regards to that kind of exchange they had, Andre said, quote, this time I drove up to him and asked him what was up. He mumbled a few curse words and walked away, end quote. And if this tip had been taken seriously, the family probably would have gotten maybe closer to answers sooner. And this, if they had done this, it would have definitely helped later on, too. So it's just like, it's really frustrating. But the reason Andre, you know, decided to come forward again is because 
when Derek is eventually caught, he saw the news coverage of him and he recognized him and he was like, oh my God, that's the dude I fucking saw. So he wanted to push to get that information to the authorities. And also, this will be kind of a theme too with some of the victims. There's another victim I'm going to talk about a little bit later that lived in this same neighborhood. Oh, okay. Yeah, that happens a bit. So I'm going to jump a few months ahead now to April 2nd, 93. Derek was suspected of attacking two teenagers who were basically like a pullout thing and like, you know, lover's lane type of thing, like making out and whatever, and came at them with a harvesting tool. And it was said that he, quote, hacked them. But thankfully, they were able to survive because he stopped attacking them because there was a car coming up and he didn't want to get caught, obviously. Now... For this one, the way they figured out it was linked was the female victim out of the couple actually ID'd him in a lineup later in 1999. Oh. But, cockroach of a human, nothing happened because they said the statute of limitations on the charges had expired. Bullshit. That's like six years. I don't fucking get you, but okay. Now, like I said a minute ago, that the first victim lived in the same neighborhood as another one, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So this person would be Randy Mibrier, and I apologize, I am probably butchering the last name. I am so, so sorry. She was 28 years old, and she was a home health nurse in Zachary, Louisiana, and she lived in the Oak Shadows subdivision. And her murder would occur on April 18th of 1998. And what had happened was there was a neighbor who actually saw Randy's three-year-old son out wandering around, and then he was saying he was lost. So she knew who he was, so she took him back to Randy's house, and then she found what they say looks like a violent struggle. Police found evidence that she was killed the night prior on the 17th. There was tons and tons of blood in the home, but her body was never found. Oh, shit. Yeah. The East Feliciana Sheriff Detective Joel Odom was told some information in regards to Randy's case. A relative of his told him that Derek had been talking about Randy to one of his, the relative's, employees. So Detective Odom tried to take this info to Zachary PD, but of course nothing came of it. So like years and years later, literally seven years later, so 2005, he's like having a lunch, you know, with a friend who happens to be an investigator from the state attorney general's office. And so he's like telling him about all of this because it's, you know, a case that's still fucking going on. But I won't get too ahead of myself on the rest of that story because it will come into play towards the end. So back to our timeline here. So in 1999, Colette Walker, age 36, filed stalking charges against Eric. There had been an incident where he had forced his way into her apartment and was like insisting on going out with her. He like kept on and kept on and kept on. And she was being like, eh, no, like you got to go, that kind of thing. Well, he eventually left his number there for her and was just like, you should call me, that kind of shit. And luckily, like nothing happened to her physically. Like he he left. But later, a friend of Colette's was asking about Derek and that whole situation because she said she saw him lurking around Colette's apartment. And he was lurking because Colette caught him trying to look in through her windows. So she filed the charges, as she should. Good for her. Yes. We'd have a bit of a gap between the next one. So Gina Wilson is our next victim. She was 41 years old, and she was the nurse and office manager at the Home Infusion Network located on Stanford Avenue in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Now, you're going to start seeing a pattern here. 
it seems like most of the victims are either in healthcare or they have relation to LSU and also pay attention to like locations and stuff. So a lot of similarities. Prior to her death, she had told her mom and also a friend that she felt like she was being watched. So another parallel he likes to stalk. So on September 24th, 2001, a coworker reported her missing because Gino just, you know, hadn't shown up at work. And this was worrisome because it wasn't like her to just dip out like she was responsible. She would be found in her home after being raped and strangled. She was found in her bed. Now, the lead detective from the East Baton Rouge Parish Sheriff's Office stated that there was no force entry and that it looked like the struggle that they had appeared to begin in her hallway. In the hallway, they found large stains, which after they processed the crime scene, they ruled it to be fecal matter, a clump of her hair. And they also found Gina's earrings separated pretty much like a good distance from one another on the floor. And then her shoes were found in a different room. What does that even mean? Like that he ripped her earrings out and threw them about? Probably. Yeah, all of these are very brutal. It was also noted that her cell phone, her shorts, and her purse were missing. They were not there. Authorities would be able to find these items a few weeks later. They were in an alley, and they had been able to trace it thanks to connecting with her cell phone provider, which at the time was Singular Wireless. I believe that's now AT&T. They helped track the phone down. And we'll also run into another instance where Gina uh, actually lived three doors down from another victim. But we'll get into that in a minute. So lots of stuff and a lot of like interweaving is what I noticed. Also to note, too, with the stalking aspect, it's really not a surprise that there was a few months between each victim. We've seen that before. Now, the next murder would take place on January 14th, 2002. This victim was Gerilyn DeSoto. She was 21 years old. She was an LSU student and she was about to enter the graduate program that coming fall. Her home was located off of Highway 1, which was said to be the same route Derek took to work. How convenient. She had a job interviewed this day to help pay for grad school, but she never showed. Later that day, her husband Darren walked in on literally such a gruesome scene. Like, oh, God, terrible. She had been beaten and stabbed to death so badly that she was described as almost being beheaded and her body was laying in a pool of her own blood. And also, this is going to play into, like I told you guys, I kind of had to cherry pick, like going a bunch of different places to find info. What was frustrating with Gerilyn's case is some sources said she was raped and others said she did not. When I looked up the stuff as far as like sentencing and stuff goes, it was going more in the camp that she was not. Either way, it's gruesome and horrible, but I just had to disclaimer that because if not, someone will at me. I just wanted to give you guys uh, that transparency on that aspect. Of course, the spouse is always pretty much like suspect number one. So they took a good hard look at Darren, but they actually would end up clearing him thanks to DNA that was found underneath Gerilyn's fingernails. Of course, he was not a match. In fact, at this point in time, nobody was. So the next victim really parallels to Gerilyn's attack so much so before he was cleared, they actually suspected Darren as a suspect with this case. So on May 31st, 2002, Charlotte Marie Pace was supposed to leave for a wedding with her roommate, Rebecca Yeager. They were going to go away for like a weekend because it was someone they had been roommates with previously type of thing. So they were all really close. 
in the Forensic Files episode, her mom is on this and they refer to her as Murray. So I'm going to go ahead and refer to her as that name from here on out. It was said that Murray arrived home at approximately 11.52 a.m. and Rebecca would end up finding her body by 2 p.m. It was said that Murray's body was completely nude and there was blood all over the place. It was all over the room, all over the furniture, and all over the bed, which was noted to be completely made but completely soaked in blood. Just terrifying. That is truly terrifying. She had 81 wounds present on her body, which were from being stabbed and also having her throat slit. The cut on her throat was so bad, it was described as, quote, an impressive wound at the top of the neck with transection of the cartilage and esophagus accompanied with a severed left jugular vein. And it was also noted by the coroner that she had blunt trauma to her head and eyeballs. And this occurred, they were recently moved into a newer townhome. It was at 1211 Charlotte, but the place they had just moved from was the house that was three doors down from Gina. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, like, I have that theory that he had been watching her since then. Let the move happen. Like, that's just my theory. Murray was also noted to have defensive wounds on her arms, forearms, hands, and wrists. And they said she put up a hell of a fight. DNA was present as well here again, and they weren't able to figure out who it was from, but it showed the same DNA profile as Gina's murderer. And eventually it is linked to Gerilyn's too, but I believe that's much later down the timeline. It's not as investigation goes on. It would be said later by Gerilyn's aunt that, quote, if she would have been able to walk into the scene of the Pace murder, it would have been like looking at Gerilyn. It was that similar. So while there wasn't an answer to who, there was definitely evidence that it had to be linked. It was so, so similar. Like there was just too much the same. Now, this next victim, she would survive. On July 9th, 2002, Diane Alexander, she was also a nurse and she was located in Bro Bridge, which was noted in an article to be about 45 minutes from Baton Rouge. Per her account, an African-American male knocked on the door asking for directions to the Montgomery house. She replied she didn't know anybody by that name, so she couldn't help him. He then counters by asking if he could use the phone and that maybe her husband might know who they are and know where the house is. Her reply would be that her husband wasn't home, so she wasn't sure. Now, not victim blaming or victim shaming. This is just like a PSA. Please, 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 if you ever have a stranger come to your door for any reason in your home alone, do not let them know that. Do not, do not, do not. But after that, she said his demeanor completely changed. He forced his way in and he did attempt to rape her. He would be unsuccessful as he couldn't keep an erection. Oh. Uh. Okay, so this is why it's there's not consistent sexual assault, because it's not always that he can preform. Yeah. He began to bludgeon her and attempted to strangle her with her telephone cord, because uh, for you younger listeners, phones used to have cords. <laughs> um, <laughs> he was also armed with a knife, uh, which is what he used to cut the cord. Luckily, somehow she was able to get her hand kind of between the cord and her neck. So this might have helped her a little bit, at least cause a little bit of extra like resistance for him. But she was going in and out of consciousness. Thankfully, though, mid-attack, Diane's son, Herman, actually showed up to the house. That's good. Right? It's like perfect timing if you can ever have it. Jesus. Once Derek heard the car coming up the gravel driveway, he fled through the back door and got into his car and left. 
Herman had stated that he saw an unfamiliar car at his parents' home, and he described it to authorities as a gold Mitsubishi Eclipse with a Hamilton Hazit plate on the front and noted a dent on the hood. So he had like a very detailed description of what this guy's car looked like. He also observed a beige telephone cord hanging out of the car window. So once Herman entered the house, he found his mom. She was in a pool of her own blood. She would be airlifted to the hospital with a fractured skull. Luckily, though, like I said, she did survive. Then just a few days later, so less than a week later, she actually was able to discuss everything with the authorities and actually help them with the composite sketch. And then this one, it's a little different from his regular MO. So literally just three days later, so July 12th, 2002, Pamela Kinnamore, a 44-year-old antique shop owner, was reported missing from her home in Baton Rouge. On that day, her husband, Byron, he showed up at their home, which was located in Briarwood Place at about 11.45 p.m. He had stated that he found a full bathtub, some spots of blood on the bedroom rug, and a minor disheveling of bedroom furniture and that his wife was gone. And then just a few days later, her body would be found on July 16th. And the location of that was Whiskey Bay exit on Interstate 10. She was actually found by a survey crew. And also from stuff I watched, they said this area is kind of desolate. It's like out there. It's not like, you know, a bunch of people are going through it and going to this area type of thing. If you are not familiar, the South is extremely hot and extremely humid, and it's just like sweltering in the summertime. But basically, this extreme weather just did not help with the decomp. Like, she was unidentifiable. I don't have a better way of saying that. They couldn't ID her. But they were able to use her dental records, and that's how they figured out she was Pamela. She had been strangled and had three significant cut wounds that were five and a half, five, and four inches long, all in her neck. And these would cut through her skin, windpipe, just below her larynx, and the opening of the airway, and the right carotid artery and both jugular veins. So a lot of damage. They also found evidence that she had been raped as well, and she also had defensive injuries on her person, on her hands, left elbow, back of her forearm and arm, and her knees. And they also were able to collect DNA from here as well during her autopsy. The profile did not produce a complete set of markers because of her body degradation, but it was enough to identify that her attacker was the same as Murray and Gina's, which obviously at this point is going to go into serial killer territory. So the authorities basically contacted a multi-agency homicide task force that came together in August of 2002 that was just to find this killer. Another huge thing to note, too, is authorities would find a piece of the telephone cord 100 feet from her, which later, and you can watch the Forensic Files episode because what one it is will be listed. It's on Netflix for you Netflix people. They would perform this thing that they called a fracture match comparison with the leftover cord from Diane's and the cord they found on the crime scene. And what they said was, even though it may stretch, like how it cuts or breaks or whatever will typically stay the same. So they could literally put it back together like a puzzle. Oh, wow. Yeah. Then on November 21st, 2002, 23-year-old Army soldier Trinisha Denae Colum would be kidnapped from Lafayette, Louisiana. 
First, they found her car, her purse, and her keys near the cemetery where her mother had actually been buried just seven months earlier, and this was at a different town. It was in Grand Cotu. Again, I'm sorry. I feel like I have to say I'm sorry after saying every one of these. Three days after this, a hunter found her body, and she was dressed in a bra, t-shirt, socks, and tennis shoes, so no bottoms. When they were processing the crime scene, they would find her underwear in her fleece pants not too far away. And it was like in some underbrush, like, you know, thick area type of thing. And they also had found a pool of blood about 30 feet from where her body was found. And from like the patterns and like, I'm sure like a bloodstream and stuff, they figured out she had been dragged from that spot over to where she was found. Her official cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head, and they are also able to get more DNA from her sexual assault kit during her autopsy. Again, no surprise, the DNA did match the others. It was also noted in multiple sources that she would be the first victim to be a person of color and then also be outside of the Baton Rouge in that immediate area, so someone a bit further And then the last victim I am going to go ahead and walk us through is 23-year-old Carrie Lynn Yoder. She was a biological sciences grad student at LSU. Her murder would take place on March 3rd, 2003. Now, her boyfriend, his name was Lee Ellis Stanton, and he reported her missing after entering the home through an unlocked window. And what was weird was that after he entered the home, he figured out that the front door was unlocked. I'm like, you wouldn't try the door before you go try a window? But okay. (laughs) All right, then. Anyway, he noted that, quote, other than a key holder that was askew, a broken necklace and a small amount of blood on her purse, there was no indication of a struggle. But I feel like, I don't know, it just seems like something's kind of weird, like blood on your purse. I guess people, you know, you nick your hand like something stupid could have happened like that, you know, so it's nothing to like super freak out over if it was super small amount of blood. But 10 days would pass until Carrie's body was found, and she was found by a commercial fisherman, also at Whiskey Bay. And her body was partially submerged into the water, and this was actually super, super close in distance to where Pam was found. It was the same MO as everybody else. She had been raped, strangled, and beaten, and they also said she had been stomped. And, you know, again, once I got DNA and all of that, it would connect again. A little tidbit, which it's, you know, I don't, it's fine to mention now. It's not like a spoiler or anything. When they went to the trials and stuff later, they got cell phone pings from Derek's prepaid phone he had in that area three times around 10 p.m. that night. So that's like fuel to the fire on top of the DNA. Got it. So as I said before, he confessed to up to 17 victims and that there was thought of possibly more. But at this point, those are the ones that did have DNA or someone did ID him, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to kind of move into how they even discovered it was possibly Derek and what all happened with him kind of after that. So like I said, they had all this DNA and, you know, they were running the profiles in the FBI's CODIS national database, but they just weren't finding a match. What they knew was this one person was connected to multiple crimes and they knew like a phone was a factor in multiple crimes. Like he'd asked to use a phone or like he took the phone or he used the cord, you know, that kind of thing. Like I said about Diane and Pam, like that cord matching each other. But something else that was noted by one of the investigators This person also took everything they touched to help avoid any evidence. So, like, he wasn't leaving fingerprints because obviously with him being arrested, his fingerprints would be in the system. 
Obviously, he didn't think as far ahead about his DNA, though, since that was left behind basically every single person. And then another common factor, you know, was the stalking, like I mentioned before. Something that did hurt the investigation, which I'm not trying to be an asshole or anything because, you know, one of the DAs was like, you know, we weren't really equipped for a serial killer type of situation. And they were getting like thousands of tips. So, like, I don't even want to imagine that world. Anyways, they were basing who they were looking for off of an eyewitness account. And it wasn't Diane's. It was off someone who came forward and said that the night Carrie died, they saw a white male driving a white pickup truck with someone slumped over going out to Whiskey Bay that looked like Carrie. And it was late at night. Now, because they already knew they were dealing with a serial killer, the authorities there reached out to the FBI office in D.C. for some help with this since they were like, we don't know who this is. With that, they requested the FBI to do a profile on what type of person to look for kind of thing. And the FBI, they came up with the following. They said the person followed or watched women probably had interactions with them that made the women uncomfortable was antisocial and had a below average income. And it is noted by special agent Mary Ellen O'Toole that race was not something that they made in their profiling prediction at all, that it could be anybody of any ethnic background. So just go off of these factors we're giving you kind of thing. But because of the eyewitness account, that's what police focused on. They focused on a white male with a white truck that literally every fucking dude had. This was not like the right path to go down because if you remember Herman's description with Diane's account, we had a totally different car. And also Derek is a person of color. So they didn't take any of that into account at all. I don't know why, but they didn't. They would end up bringing in and took DNA samples from a thousand men. Damn. And none of them matched, of course, because none of them were Derek. So at this point, I'm going to bring in another person. His name is Dr. Tony Ferdakis, and he is a molecular biologist. And I learned a lot from him on Forensic Files. So here we go. He reminded them that eyewitness accounts can be, and most of the time usually are, inaccurate. Not as reliable as people like to hope because people forget things. People may see something wrong. Like if it's dark out, you can't see someone clearly. Distance, you're in your car, that kind of thing. And like at the end of the day, some people lie. They weren't saying that this witness or anything like that was lying, but it was just another point to make. So he offered to help them and he had a new DNA test that could be able to get the killer's physical characteristics. And on forensic files, they called this DNA witness. So this essentially would give them the ancestral background of the killer so they would know who exactly to look for, whether, yes, they needed to look for a white male or maybe they needed to look for a Hispanic male or, you know, African-American, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the assistant DAs, his name is Tony Clayton, who was working on this. He literally said in his interview, he was like, we were like, no way, you're crazy. That's not a thing. You cannot do that. So they thought he was fucking nuts. But really, what did they have to lose at this point? They had no idea who the fuck they were looking for. So before they handed over the killer's DNA, they decided to give him a trial run and they gave him 30 different samples to go through. And it was all like people that they knew who they were, that kind of thing. It was like people they had booked and whatnot or whatever to see how accurate this test would be. Well, the test got every single one of them right. And basically they were all like, holy motherfuck, what the fuck? Okay, you're the real deal. 
we're going to give you the killer's DNA stuff. So he ran the test on the killer's DNA, and it came back that it was 85% African descent and 15% Native American descent. So one of the other DA's assistants, uh, her name was Dana Cummings. She was talking and she was like, besides the fact that they leaned into this eyewitness accounts, like what else she feels like kind of played into them, assuming it was a white male was because majority of serial killers are white males. Yes. So they just assumed. And we all know what happens when you assume. You make an ass of you and me. So it's like, obviously, she doesn't blame them. And, you know, she does commend them for their hard work. But she was like, this was a fatal mistake. Like, this caused things to go longer than they needed to. Possibly. Because, you know, he was had tons of criminal history. So he probably would have been brought up a lot sooner. Type of thing, you know. Well, with all this, with all this, remember way, way earlier when I was telling you about Detective Odom and the lunch and Randy's case and all of that stuff? So after that lunch, they decided to go and talk to the employee. And they did that the next day after their lunch. So we're, for reference for y'all, we're now to May 2005. After this interview, Detective Odom said he had a, quote, strong, strong indication that Derek might have killed Randy. And then I also grabbed another quote from him saying that, quote, basically, it was for Randy's killing. Everything we did was unrelated to the serial killer task force. It was just a murder we happened to be working on. And he says the names of the known victims, you know, because it was fewer at that point. So Green, Pace, Kinnamore, Tanisha, and Carrie, like all of them, they just added them to the subpoena, basically, since Derek's whereabouts could not be confirmed during all of these murders. So on May 5th, the sheriff's investigators in East Feliciana Parish, they were able to track him down and get the DNA swab. So Detective Odom said that he was acting in a, quote, highly, highly suspicious way on the day he was, you know, going to have to take the test. He said he was trying to evade us. We saw him in in the car we were looking for, and he started swerving, trying to duck us through subdivisions and grocery store parking lots. And it was also, you know, noted that he got aggressive. He was cussing at the investigators and being like, you're trying to frame me and stuff like that. But when he finally figured out what was happening and he was just getting a DNA swab, it said that he like totally did a 180 and he totally calmed down because he went from like a totally like belligerent jerk and he was just like being cooperative as shit. They think that he thought he was going to get arrested then type of thing. But they said at that point in time, you know, they didn't have any evidence yet linking him like they needed the DNA. After he figured out it was a DNA swab, they said he didn't even try to run nothing like he just totally cooperated. And then what they also did after this, they brought Diana back in and they had him in a lineup of people and she ID'd him immediately as her attacker. And then, no spoilers, his DNA was a match. Towards the end of the month, um, I'm sorry, I didn't write this specific day down, but towards the end of May, I believe it was the 25th, he would be arrested in Atlanta and he would be extradited back to Louisiana. And they said there was like no fight, no nothing like that. They did end up going to trial for the murders of Gerilyn and Murray. Gerilyn's took place on August of 2004. Earlier, I kind of talked about this as far as everything that happened to her. So he was found guilty of second-degree murder and given a life sentence. They said they could have gone for first-degree murder, but it would have taken longer because they were claiming she wasn't sexually assaulted. So that's why I'm like, I'm not quite sure, you know what I mean? Or if it was like a failed attempt type of thing, like another case was. And then Murray's trial took place in October of 2004, and here he was given the death penalty to be executed by lethal injection. 
and he would be placed on death row at Louisiana State Penitentiary. But that wouldn't be carried out because in January of 2016, he was actually rushed to Lane Memorial Hospital where he would suddenly die on January 21st at the age of 47. And it would later come out that his cause of death was heart disease. And that story ends so abruptly, just like that. I know. I feel so unsatisfied. Right? It's just like, what the fuck, man? So he died in a hospital instead of death penalty being carried out. But we are going to go ahead and wrap this episode up. Thank you guys so much for listening. Melissa, thank you so much for, you know, not only just suggesting this topic to us, but to also supporting our show continuously. We really, really appreciate you and are so grateful to have you as a patron. We love you. Yes. Thank you so much, Melissa, for being a patron. And it means a lot that you guys, all of our patrons support and take the time. And it's still mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Every time we get a new patron, our mind is blown. So thank you so much for supporting the show and supporting our little endeavor we do. Yes, yes. All right, guys. Well, we are going to go ahead and sign off. We will see you on Monday for our next regular episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.